Welcome to the EquipCast for the Archdiocese of Omaha. Designed to help leaders to transform their cultures, to embody the pastoral vision, to be one church, encountering Jesus, equipping disciples, and living mercy. Hey everybody, welcome to the EquipCast. My name is Jim Jansen, and I am your host, and I'm so glad you're with us today. We're going to have an awesome conversation today. I'm excited to uh, introduce our, our guest to, to you. I'm pretty sure you're going to love what you hear. If you do, please share this with someone, uh, someone else you know who would benefit uh, from joining in this conversation. You can find us at EquipCast, uh, all one word. We're on all the major platforms. Go ahead and subscribe there and share this with a friend. Uh, we'd love to hear your comments. If you want to go to equip.archomaha.org, you can find the show notes and you can get everything there. Uh, this, our, our whole purpose of doing this is to help individuals and communities uh, rediscover their identity and their mission in Christ. And towards that end, we're going to have a conversation today about ordinary mercy. How do you live mercy in a way, well, that kind of fits uh, the ordinary life of those that, we know many of you have families and have lives and don't work full-time for the church. If that's you, but you, you kind of heard this, this call for mercy. I mean, there's nothing more, you know, fun than being out at parishes with, you know, non-professional Catholics who are like, so Pope Francis wants me to love poor people, but what does that mean? Today, we're going to have a conversation uh, with a good friend, Deacon Omar Gutierrez. Deacon Omar, how you doing? I'm well. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Thank you for joining us. So, so glad you're here. So we, we always, anytime we get started in the EquipCast, we love to give our guests an opportunity to tell a little bit about their story. So who are you? <laughs> well, uh, I am a first-generation American. My dad was in Dominican Republic. My okay. mom was from Costa Rica. Uh, they met in Michigan, obviously. Sure. And uh, as, as you do, my dad being Dominican was very dark skinned, so black. And my mom uh, was white, essentially. So, for instance, the, the, the first priest they went to to marry them in Michigan, this is Michigan in the 1960s, refused to do so because they were of mixed race. Wow. Um, yeah. In so, Michigan in the 60s. Oh, sure. This that was not Alabama. No. Oh, no. Yeah. No, that's. Yeah. And then, uh, and then on top of that, my dad was a communist atheist. And my oh, mom, sure. uh, as you, you know, and uh, Fidel right. Castro. Back to the Michigan thing again. Right, sure, sure right. Fidel Castro was his hero. And um, and my mom was devout Catholic. Like, um, I mean, she was right there at the beginning of the charismatic movement in the in the 70s. She was the kind of, and like Latina Catholic, right? So like oh, praying yeah. in tongues, praying in tongues to get a parking spot kind of Catholic. I mean, that's yeah. that was my mom. I exaggerate not. So growing up was an interesting Interesting thing. So all that just to say, uh, who am I? I'm still trying to figure that out. I guess the, the whole sure. question of identity as a first generation American and the, uh, growing up with a funny name, funny last name, having the name Omar after 9-11 made things interesting. Uh, yeah. You know, so I, I got patted down a lot, which I'm fine with. <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, so <laughs> probably but, depends uh, on which TSA agent you get. This is true. Yeah, <laughs> the yeah we've never Ra we've never traveled together. So no, this is true. Yeah, uh, seventy year old Randy in the Lacrosse Airport was just fine. He was a fine gentleman, nice nice guy. And I'm I'm happy. I'm a husband, so I'm uh, happily married. Sixteen years, seventeen years this summer. Father of five, um, from sixteen down to one. And uh, I'm a deacon as of uh, four years. This May, um, we've been in the Archdiocese of Omaha for, gosh, the 13 years now, I guess. Um, yeah. Baseball fan and and uh, a lover of, of film and, and music and books and and the social teaching of the church is kind of my yeah. bailiwick. Yeah. Wait, what's your baseball team? Uh, the Cleveland Indians, although they won't Cleveland be called Indians. the Cleveland Indians much longer because uh, we, we're getting rid of that name. But, yeah. yeah, okay. I mean, I can't help because I feel like the listeners are wondering this, like, where, where are your parents now? And particularly your dad, that like, yeah. is he, is he still a communist atheist fan of Fidel Castro? Or is there a, is there, a, is there a, another story hiding there? Yeah. So he, um, he passed away in 2001, but before he passed away, he did reconcile himself with the church. So I mean, he, he grew up in Latin America, so you're just sure. automatically yeah. Catholic or that sort of thing. He, 
experienced some bad things in the church. Um, uh, and, uh, but essentially his, his appreciation for the, the, the rise of the communist socialist movement in Latin America was a result of the, the bad things the American government was doing in Latin America and, and mm-hmm. backing some uh, traders. There. In fact, the reason he actually got here to this country was because he had, he drank too much one night and started saying some things about the dictator and uh, one of his friends who was, was in the military said, hey, your name showed up on a list. You should probably skip town. So um, he wow. came to the United States. But so uh, that's that's what it was. But toward the end of his life, uh, he had cancer. And um, I was finishing up graduate school in theology. And so I went home and I took care of him for the last eight months of his life. And about a month or wow. so or two before he passed away, he finally reconciled himself with the church. And I, we had a conversation. He said, I realized the things that happened to me were not the church, but certain people in the church. And so we, we had the priest come over. He went to confession, received communion, probably for the first time in 60 years or more, probably more than that, 70 years. Wow. Um, and then and passed away. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. I can't help but but think that, that isn't, that's not going to be incidental uh, to our conversation today. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. That's beautiful. You kind of mentioned it, you know, that the social teaching of the church uh, living of living of mercy, it's become your bailiwick. I don't know what a bailiwick is, but I think I know what you meant. Um, I had one, but I think it broke. Uh, anyway, <laughs> I see it in the background there. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about you know. There's a my motivation in this right. right you know, calling this like living ordinary mercy. I mean, I think Omar, I think you're one of the most articulate voices, magnifying and repeating the the church's teaching on mercy and the social teaching and doctrine of the church it's it's often referred to thank you tell us a little bit just kind of set the table for us for the conversation if you would just give us a like the super short crash course into what does that even mean what is the social teaching of the church yeah so very briefly uh it was a specific set of teachings in response to real life things happening in europe at the time and so the the very sort of shorthand thumbnail line I use is the social teaching is there to help us know how to be Catholic the other six days of the week. Uh, so we all know we're supposed to go to mass on Sunday. Yeah. Um, and that's definitely a Catholic thing we know we're supposed to do, but uh, what does it mean to be Catholic in the way I shop in the way I budget for my family in the way I, I consume media and the way I vote and the way I think about the issues in my family or in my neighborhood or with the city council rep or what, like, how do I think about any of that in the context of being Catholic and the social teaching yeah. there is to help give us some guidelines for figuring that out. Well, I mean, I, I can't help, but think that's more important than it's ever been. I'm, I'm flashing back yeah. to something John Paul II said uh, years ago, now quite a few years ago, <laughs> that, that one of the difficulties the church is experiencing now is that, even people who would consider themselves believers who would go to mass on Sunday, fewer and fewer of us live like atheists the other mm-hmm. six days of the week. And here you're saying like, yeah, the, the church kind of has uh, there's, there's some, there's the church has something to say on that. So just to tell a quick story and we're, we're practically unique in the way we tell that story. So what I mean by that is a number mm-hmm. of years ago, when I was hired by the Archdiocese a year, years and years ago, 13 years ago, I was here to do stuff on the social teaching. I was giving a talk and uh, a, a young couple walked in, which was very rare because young people never came to my talks. But um, I asked them, hey, stick around and we'll chat. And so we, we started chatting and it turns out they were an engaged couple. Uh, and he was um, a member of a very small evangelical church that had been formed around uh, this this ideal of living intently uh, the Christian life. Mm-hmm. And they lived in community with each other. And their pastor was a 20-something-year-old guy. And he said, hey, we were kind of, we've heard about the social teaching, but we want to learn more. And so that's why I came to the talk. Uh, and I really enjoyed it. I said, well, that's great. We would come back again. The next day, I get a call from his pastor. Again, who's like 20-something years old. And, and he's on the phone. He's like, I heard you were sweet and I, I want to hear about the sweetness <laughs> of the sweet teaching you had. And like, totally, I'm like, great. Well, come over to dinner, meet my wife and family and we'll chat. So we we're, we're chatting. And um, the story of these young evangelicals was they had a conversion and encounter with Christ. They wanted to, to live their Christian faith intently and with an absolute, an absoluteness they weren't seeing elsewhere. 
Yeah. So they so they said, where do we see that in in Christian history? Well, the monks used to do that, right? They lived in community. They pray together. They work together. Okay, we'll do that. So they they bought a house and they pulled their money and they're living in community together. And they said, well, how else do we do that? And so they started looking around. They couldn't find very much. They happened to be near St. Peter's Parish, which is my parish. And they were talking to Father Cook at the time, who was the pastor. And he said, well, there's this thing called Catholic social teaching. And and also Thomas Aquinas and St. John of the Cross. And so they started reading these Catholic thinkers and like, we've this is great. We've never seen anything like this before. And then they found the social teaching. They said, oh, oh, the, the Catholic Church has actually thought about some of this stuff. That's awesome. About how we can live authentically in this world, not medieval world, but in this world. Yeah. in an authentically Christian way. And so that's what we want to learn more about. Now, I think all but like three or four of that community are Catholic. Wow, that's that's fantastic. Okay, so I want to dive in. You said like live in this world. And I think that's often the challenge because as I was thinking about how do we live mercy? How do we extend the ministry of Jesus beyond, right, you know, the other six, six days of the week? I see a lot of stained glass windows with saints holding baskets of bread or nursing those with wounds, which, yeah. I mean, it's great. Like, you know, it's like, oh man, if a, if a leper ever shows up, I think I know what I'm supposed to do. <laughs> right. Um, but, that story. Yeah. but yeah, but living mercy, attending to the needs, being a, a good citizen, it looks a little different in today's day and age. If you would break that out for us a little bit, like what is the church saying about how we live mercy, how we live as citizens, conduct ourselves the other six days of the week in today's world. Yeah. So a, a couple of things. One is just to um, allay f- fear and anxiety. When I, Whenever I give presentations or talks about the social teaching, invariably I will find people who are really very anxious because they feel this hmm expectation i'm supposed if i'm gonna i'm supposed to be a saint i'm supposed to be holy being a saint being holy is like the stained glass windows so that's what i'm supposed to do and because i'm not doing that somehow i'm failing god i'm failing jesus so the so the first thing to point out is just context (laughs) and most much it's not something we've forgotten i think it's just not something we just don't always know some of the parishes even in our so just take our archdiocese some of the parishes in our archdiocese are larger than archdioceses were of Paris in like the Middle Ages. Like there are more Catholics in one parish in Omaha than there were Catholics in all of Paris uh, in the Middle Ages. Yeah, that's um, that's helpful context. Yeah. So um, A, B, naturally, economically, we're vastly different in the way yeah. we manifest ourselves. In fact, this is why social teaching exists. The way we support our families, the way we're involved in government, our relationship with the government, the state, all of that changed radically in a very short period of time. So just to put everybody at ease, we're not expected to, to do Christianity in the same way, perhaps, as those stained glass windows showed. Yeah. At the same time, we want to get at the heart of, of what it is that they did. And so one of the other misconceptions with regard to the social teaching is that it's about doing stuff. Um because the social teaching often re- refers to things like uh, principles for reflection and guidelines for activity and directives for action, like that's the the, the pat language of the documents. Um, yes, it, it gives us that. And there are principles and values. Absolutely, there's intellectual knowledge. However, we often forget it starts first and foremost, the same place that every teaching of the church starts mm. and has the same end that every teaching of the church has, which is this know Jesus, love him, so you can be with him forever. Punto. Like, that's it. That's all you have to worry about. So in the context of today's world, then, how can I know Jesus better? How can I love him better so that I can be with him now and in the future? That's fantastic. I mean, that's, and I think what I love about the way you just articulated that is there's a natural link and connection between evangelization, uh, that'd yes. be my bailiwick, right? And yes. the social teaching of the church and the living of mercy. And sad to say, the practical experience often is that those worlds feel far apart, that the individuals who are passionate about those dedicated, committed, well-trained, you know, often sit on opposite ends of the table at lunch. And that's, a, that's, that's not the way it's supposed to be. 
No, and there and there is a reason for that, and part of it because I've I've seen this myself. Um, so first of all, to your point about there being a natural connection with the evangelization here, Pope Paul this Pope Saint Paul the sixth said this right in an evangelium nuciandi. He said there's this there's this link there. Point A, point B is um, one of the difficulties I've found uh, when talking about the social teaching is we will tell our young people that to live the social teaching means doing certain things, mm-hmm. uh, protesting at an abortion clinic or capital punishment or, or feeding the hungry, whatever. Okay. So that's what it means. And, and oftentimes it's connected with confirmation, right? And I'm not knocking anybody's confirmation programs, but uh, there are service projects and, and our young people are told to be an adult Christian, adult Catholic means doing these things. Okay. So then that young person goes off to college, for instance, and they're involved with social awareness and all that kind of stuff. And they're doing the work that they were told is the work of an adult Christian, except mm-hmm. the person doing it next to them is an atheist or a Buddhist or a Methodist or whatever. And, they, and they're, they're doing the same work. So our young people who are not stupid say to themselves, um, if being a Catholic means doing this stuff and these people are doing this stuff, then why am I saving myself for marriage? Why am I going to mass mm-hmm. on Sunday? Why am I doing any of this stuff if to be a Catholic means doing these things? Um, And what's more, we've had, I've seen this and I've had parents on the phone weeping with me about this. We, We send these students off to do these missionary things and they come back and they, they don't go to mass anymore. And when asked by their parents, they say, well, my, my religion now is loving the poor. Uh, My work, my church is serving the poor in some other place, whatever it might be. Mm -hmm. So we, because we've disconnected, Jesus from the work, the work ends up becoming a kind of baptized humanitarianism and, and it ceases to be evangelical. Yeah. And I mean, and this is Pope Francis and so many others. There's this beautiful cycle. I want to see if I can do justice to it that, you know, it's, it's like a chicken or egg question. It's like, well, is it that people encounter Jesus as the works of mercy are shown to them, you know, thinking about in the ministry of Jesus, he's often, you know, he, he's often healing or feeding and, and that seems to open up the heart to the gospel. And, or, or, or is it that, well, it's, it's when people have come to know Jesus, then they begin to live mercy and then they have new eyes and a new heart for the poor. And I think the answer is yes. And yes. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Precisely. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But, but there's often, again, so I think we, we sometimes want to, we, we want to divide and fracture those things. So thank you. I really appreciate that articulation. I, if I can, I want to give you an opportunity maybe to dispel, I think, another, for lack of a better term, hang up in that we going back to Paris and those baskets full of bread and our stained glass windows, we now live in a culture and a society where there are uh, professional ministers of mercy, counselors, Mm, and people who run soup kitchens. And there are social safety nets that, you know, didn't exist, at least in the same way, uh, in in other times. And so I think for many of us, there's this hang up where we feel like, I don't know, I mean, I'm not equipped for this. I'm not trained for this. I, I just... I don't know how to talk to someone who struggles with insert whatever pain, grief, addiction. Mm-hmm. And although there is an element to which it's true, I think it's a subtle lie that keeps us from encountering Christ in the poor, uh, in our neighbors. It keeps us from jumping in when there's an opportunity and a need in, fr- in front of us. Can you speak to that a little bit? I like the way you phrase that because there, there is, um, in fact, some of the history of the social teaching has been the struggle to try to figure out um, what is the role of the Catholic in these social safety nets and should we have these at all um, because of our, our calling as, as, as laymen uh, to go and, and serve the poor. I'm reminded of Dorothy Day, who, if your listeners don't, don't know very well, was just, she was, she was an intellectual. She had, she had, written a, a, a movie, a screenplay, and she was she was a very smart, literate woman who wrote a lot and was very politically active, et cetera. Um, and then she has a conversion. She becomes Catholic, and she's in 
uh, a church in New York and she's praying and she says, I need to find out what serving the poor means now. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and there was a, a French Canadian fellow named Peter Moran who just happened to be there. And he said, Hey, our lady told me to come over and talk to you. So let's talk. Uh, and um, from that point forward, she had no expertise in any of this. She was a, a young mom, um, but she she felt this passion to serve the poor, and the Lord provided for it. Um, so yeah, this there that is true that there are certain areas or aspects where one one needs to be careful in in terms of being a therapist or caring for somebody with with serious needs. But there is this tendency for us to sort of say, well, that's that's for the professional to take care of. That's for the experts to take uh, care of. Um, or even, and this is a great Dorothy Dayline, that's for the saints to take care of. One of her mm. famous quotes is, don't call me a saint. I don't want to be dismissed so easily. And what she wow. meant by that is that we tend to think of the saints as those experts in the spiritual life. It's, it's their job. Mm-hmm. She says, you're just, no, that's dismissal. That's trying to, that's a cop out. Like, no, you're called to do it in your everyday life. Now, discerning how to do that, that's part of the conversation now. It's part of always the conversation we have with our Lord and with our spiritual leaders uh, in the church and outside. But, um, but, but that that's accessible to everybody. Yeah. yeah. So give us some stories. Like let's bring this to life. What does this, what does it look like now? Yeah. And that's, the, that's the, always the question. So I laugh only because um, whenever I give a talk, like I'll give a talk and I'll talk about this or the other thing. And at the end, invariably I'll get somebody like saying, okay, that all sounds right, but, what does it actually look like, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, because that, he's right. I mean, the, you're right. That's the ultimate question. Uh, so obviously it's going to de- depend of different people, but I'll give you a couple examples. Um, uh, I'll give you first, like a real life example from a rancher here in the Archdiocese who, um, he, he runs a ranch. He's been working on the ranch for years. Uh, and one of the things I love about this guy is he's, he's a devout Catholic. He treats his workers, not just fairly, um, but this is what he does. If, if for one of his workers, if the worker shows up on time, five days in a row, he gets a bonus of like 20 bucks. If he shows up on time for a month, he gets a bonus of like 150 bucks. Or whatever. If he does that for three months, a thousand dollars. If he does that every single day for a year, he can get this huge bonus, whatever it is. Now for, for anybody who runs a business and I've done in the past where like you think, the workers fulfilling their obligation, why are you giving them a bonus? Like they're doing the job they're supposed to be doing. What that forgets is that we as human beings exist to, to be recognized, right? In relationship. And so by doing this, he's recognizing for them, look, I value the fact that you're living up to your yes to me. And I'm, I'm going to show my value and my appreciation for that in this way. Uh, yeah. And at the end of the year, he has a uh, an event, a big event for all his workers, and they're all there together. And they, he throws a big bash for them, right? Um, because he's showing to them he cares for them in a yeah. real, honest way. One, one of the early figures, sorry to go on and on, but the, it's one of the yeah. early figures of the Church of Social Teaching was this Frenchman. His name was Leon Harmel, uh, and he owned uh, a textile factory just kind of give you a sense of who this guy was. This is the, when Pope Leo XIII sat down to write the first social encyclical, he actually went to this guy and said, tell me, what does it actually look like? Like, let me know. And one of the things wow. this guy, Leon Hormel, who was a layman who ran a textile factory, one of the things he did is he would, he would give classes to his employees about how to save money. Um, he yeah. would, he set up a school so his kids could go to school close to where they were. He set up a union for his employees so that they would have representation for him. They used to call him our father, mon père, uh, because they knew he cared so much for his workers. Wow. And his argument was that is the obligation of every owner of a business to care for the people under your care because you are like a father to them. That's what it looks like in the real world. Man, and I just can't help but think that is so miles away <laughs> from Marx and right. you know yeah. labor strikes. And I mean, that's just like, uh, yeah, that's just that. And that's often outside of our experience. I mean, more and more as work begins to uh, take over our lives. There's like, yeah. And, and, you know, and my, my employer, we have a gym too. Uh, so I mean, right, but that's right, right, right. 
but it's like, gosh, that's so, that's so beautiful. What if you're not the owner, right? What if you're not the one who runs the business? What does it mean when you are just, I'm, I'm a member, I'm kind of an ordinary member of society. Yeah. So it's uh, for the employee, it's going to be, there's a, a wonderful word that was introduced into the, the lexicon of the social teaching by Pope Benedict. And the word is gratuitousness. Um, and this is a word that's going to be applicable to anybody, no matter where you're at in the spectrum of life. Uh, okay, this English, is not about tipping waitresses or anything. No, exactly. In okay. English, gratuitousness tends to mean, like we associate with a gratuitous violence or gratuitous, like it's too much or a gratuity that you give for you know, a waitress. Um, but the, but the, the Latin or the Italian actually comes from the Italian gratitudine simply means thank, thanksgivingness, thankfulness. Right? Mm. So what Pope Benedict taught was we, and he actually gets this from theology of the body in our exchanges with other human beings, whether it's economic or otherwise, we need to continually foster an attitude of gratuitousness of thanksgiving of thankfulness. And the reason for that is because when we do that, we begin to recognize the other, not simply as a, a, a cog in an exchange, but as someone who has served us in some way and we're saying thank you. So if I'm the employee, I carry with me and I foster an attitude of thanksgiving for my employer. Even if the employer is a jerk to a certain degree, I'm still thankful for the, for the fact that they're putting in the work to make sure I get paid on time. Mm-hmm. They're putting the work to 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 manage that, to pay the taxes that are requiring for the you know the help the the city maintain streets or whatever. I'm thankful to my fellow coworkers for showing up that day and working with me on whatever project it might be. That I'm if I'm constantly offering that sense, if I'm a consumer, right? I'm thankful that the business exists in order to produce for me the product that I can purchase at a reasonable price. Um, yeah. So that maintaining that sense of gratuitousness is something that. Is a way to concretely live the social teaching wherever we're at on the spectrum. You know, I hear, as you talk about that, I hear the roots, I was going to say echoes, but the roots of some of the appreciation as people try to support local businesses, or I think what, what often flowered forth in this context of the pandemic, where people were, were like, gosh, I've never been so grateful yeah. for the clerk at the grocery store. You know, suddenly, I mean, certainly healthcare professionals Mm -hmm. became heroes uh, overnight. But now like that, that, that guy who like stocks the shelves and the, the, you know, the, the Grubhub delivery guy, there was a a gratitude for localness and for those who were serving um, again, particular places were, were highlighted, but I see, I see the root of that. That's, that's a real practical manifestation. Absolutely. And it, and it has one of the other teachings of Pope Benedict, when he's talking about this in the, the document, God is love. The first half is on God and the second half is actually no social teaching. And he says, this goes to your previous question about, um, you know, the, the professionalization sometimes of ministry and what, what we can do. He said, there's three things that mark the church. The first thing is kerygma, right? The proclamation of the gospel, the basic. The second, he says, is liturgia, which is worship of God. And the third thing he says is diakonia, which is where we get deacon, which means service, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so the idea being that um, if we can recognize the role of service we have as me as a husband to my spouse, to my children, to my employer, to my employees, to my customers, to the guy, you know, who's trying to get things done in a reasonable way. Yeah. If we can recognize our role of service in all that we do, that can have an, a charismatic power and a worshiping power as well, just as the charisma can be a, a matter of service as well. So I want to ask a little bit about, um, again, I think we're removing obstacles as, as we, as we go here. Sometimes I think the, the expectation that we have to go find those in need, that mm-hmm. we have to, you know, carve out, not that it's a bad thing to carve out Saturday mornings to go to a soup kitchen or that we have to carve out time to, to seek those who are grieving. But often the Lord 
presents these folks, literally they they show up in our path. I mean, I think about the story of the Good Samaritan, but I also think of a story uh, that you shared, I remember in a talk uh, in my parish before I came to Omaha about uh, Mother Teresa and a, oh, yeah. a hilarious, I mean, literally someone showing up in her path when she had another appointment. Um, I think we'll probably need to break this story down because I don't want it to intimidate people, but I thought it was a fantastic story that helps to alleviate the idea that I have to go looking for those in need. Would you just share a little bit of that story and then we can dive into it? Yeah, no, it's a beautiful story. So um, I always preface this by saying you have to be careful with stories about Mother Teresa because <laughs> the quickest way to win an argument is by saying, you know, Mother Teresa said. Um, so yes. this is a true story. It was, it was mentioned, it was told by Monsignor John Nassif, who who was there at the time, was a spiritual director from Mother Teresa. Um, and the backstory is that when Mother Teresa founded her Missionaries of Charity, she had always wanted to have a convent of the missionaries at the Vatican, and this space opened up. She approached the Archbishop about getting this space. He kind of blew her off and said, well, you're going to have to go talk to the Pope to do that. So she said, okay, fine, I'll go talk to the Pope because she's Mother Teresa, right? So uh, she goes, uh, sets up an appointment with, with the Holy Father, John Paul II, uh, and being the busy fellow that he was, the, the appointment wasn't until something like 18 months later. So uh, mother goes back to Calcutta, uh, loves on the people she loves on, and then 18 months later comes back to Rome. She's in the car, and I've been to the home for the missionaries of charity outside the city. So it's 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 a good drive. It's 45 minutes an hour into the city. She's in the car. There's a sister driving. There's another sister who's kind of a right hand sister, and then Monsignor and her, and they're within eye shot, like stones throw from the bronze doors of St. Peter's to go see the Holy Father. And suddenly, mother says, "Stop the car." Sister stops the car and mother gets out. And by the side of the road, uh, by the, the beautiful wall there, is, is a homeless man, totally laid out, still um, filthy. And she goes up to him, kneels by his side, sits him up, takes his hands, caressing his hand, brushing the hair from his face, getting to know who he is. Uh, and meanwhile, the sisters are in the car and they're looking at their watch and they say, you know, we have, we have to go see the Holy Father. Um, and mother says, well, you go on without me. And the sisters, who knows what they were thinking on the inside, but on the outside, they said, well, what should we tell him? And without skipping, she says, well, to tell him I'm with Jesus, he'll understand. Yeah. Now there's a beautiful story. Uh, and, and of course she did end up getting the convent, but as I prayed about the, with the story more and more, I, I started to ask myself, okay. If mother was in the car and, and they go to the meeting and the first thing she says when they get out of St. Peter's after the meeting, the first thing she says is, now let's go start our work by caring for the homeless man we passed on the way here. We might still be telling the story because we'll say, see, she was thinking about the homeless man even when she went to go see the Holy Father. Mm-hmm. Or if as she's walking up and before she goes in, she goes, no, I got to go back and be with the homeless man. You go ahead and have the meeting. We might still be telling the story, but that's not what happened. She saw this man and she stopped. And so I asked myself and I asked the listeners to what would cause you, you're on your way to an appointment that you've been waiting for, for years. You're on your way there. What would cause you to stop? Not pause, not think, but stop in your tracks. And for me, I can only think of a couple of things that would cause me to do so. But for mother Teresa, it was the sight of her beloved. Mm -hmm. She saw him. She had to be with him. And that, I always say, that's Catholic social teaching. To know wow. Jesus, to love him, and to be with him now, and so that we can be with him in the future. Yeah, I have to confess, I think I would have grabbed her by force, saying like, listen, you're my ticket to see the Pope. <laughs> yeah, like, right. And fine, we'll, like bring this anyway. guy, we'll bring this guy with us. But, right. Yeah, that's right. but I, gosh, yeah, that's, that, and I, I, I've heard that story, Omar. It's been like five years since the first, and it, it has come back to me again and again and again. It has changed the way I respond to the homeless I see on the road. Mm-hmm. It has change the way I respond to some of the needs of my children and to annoying, certainly not Whitney, our producer, but right, good <laughs> staff members who have inconvenient needs and questions. And I'm like, what? I was just about to, yeah, no. So, so not Whitney, the producer <laughs> who won't be editing this out, but right, I mean, it has changed the way I 
I've responded uh, in, in moments. And it, it comes back to me in times of decision. What would you say to somebody who's like, okay, I have no idea how to get started here. Mm. Like, okay, so not Mother Teresa, just like (laughs) pretty clear I'm not there. Uh, Is there a baby step? Right, yeah. Um, Yeah, so one thing I would would say uh, is we're not Mother Teresa. So in in reaction to that story, I've, I've also seen folks um, their anxieties rise with that story because because they're not Mother Teresa, right? Yeah. And so then their thought is, okay, okay, but you know, so are you saying that because I'm not, I'm not living? Okay, just no, let it go. Just spend, just spend first first step, very practical baby step. Spend time with the Eucharistic Lord. Just mm-hmm. spend time with Him. Uh, I don't just mean spend time in prayer. I don't just mean doing a devotional. I'm, I mean literally just spend time with Him. Um. You don't have to do anything. If you fall asleep, even better. Just spend time with him. Um, and what the saints have revealed to us time and time again is, in doing that, you will, you will foster a familiarity with him mm-hmm. so that the Christ that is hidden in the Eucharist will reveal to himself as he's hidden in the poor. Whatever poor person that might be, whether it's the homeless guy or whether it's the annoying employer or employee, whatever, um, Christ will reveal himself to you more and more. Not that he wasn't before, but you will be used to seeing him and being in his presence. Yes. And I would add, I think it works in reverse as well. So, so times that I have been blessed uh, to go on uh, short-term mission trips or mm-hmm. even just to do local, very in- intensive works of mercy, my my experience of Christ hiding in the poor, the the revelation of my own poverty in that. Uh, I mean, I, I can tell you a time I was in Mexico City working with street kids, and I'm in this city park where a lot of these you know addicts, homeless street kids live, and apparently just a few days before, uh, there was a horse show in this park. So. It's, it wasn't a particularly clean park anyway. Mm-hmm. And then there was this, you know, horse show. And you can just imagine like what happened with all these horses in this park. And I remember how difficult of a time I had attending to the people in front of me. I was, I was so distracted by the, the stuff, the chaos, the junk, the smell, the horse droppings. And and I had uh, this wonderful, good friend guide me. Uh, some, some of some of our listeners know him. They were on an earlier uh, podcast, uh, Craig Joring of Hope of the Poor. He's like, bro, what are you doing? Like, come here. Because I was screwing around trying to like clean up this, this city park and I was missing mm. the Jesus in front of me. Mm. And that bore great fruit and still does as I find myself like, attending to whether I'm in front of Jesus in the Eucharist or whether I'm with other people. And I just let myself sometimes get distracted and I miss the people in front, in front of me. And it, the, the poor and time immersed with them has often served to heal my distraction mm. and my eyes focused on the wrong things. Um, so gosh, that, that's, that's beautiful. What is a particular person? So as you're trying to begin to have these new eyes, as you're beginning to, to serve, what do a person's particular gifts and maybe you do have a professional background, like what, what do they play? When I talk about the social teaching, I, 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 as I have done already, I emphasize the role of Christ in the midst of it and his being through the beginning and the middle of the end of the whole project. But there is also this aspect of the social teaching that is that is part of Christ's own message. Uh, so I think it's part of the kerygma. Uh, it's certainly there in St. Paul repeatedly over and over again. Uh, and that's the role of uh, communion and community. Um, so in terms of uh, one's own gifts and um, uh, sort of background, a professional background, whatever it might be, um, I, I am by nature, so knowing yourself helps, but I am by nature an introvert. Um, uh, and and if I could explain that, I simply all I mean by that is um, 
being around other people, especially lots of other people is exhausting to me. Um, not in the moment, but afterwards I'm just spent because it, for some reason it's draining and it's just the way I'm built. Um, for others, it's the opposite. Being around people yeah. just excites them and gives them energy. So I would encourage people then uh, with those gifts uh, to use those in a way that helps stretch them a little bit. Um, so um, because communion and community is so central to what it means to living the social teaching, if you find yourself that you're, you're an introvert, perhaps, um, then to be intentional about being in communion with others. Um, whether or not, and I can give some practical points later, but, but doing that and, and likewise for the extrovert who may have, um, the tendency to have lots of different relations, but no real deep ones, right. Mm -hmm. Being intentional about having the deep ones, right. And being in yeah. communion with the one or two people, um, because knowing what it is to be in communion is to know what it is that Christ did for us, uh, when he founded the church. Wow. That's beautiful. I mean, you're practically talking you're talking about kim and i <laughs> you know i'm i'm the extrovert she's the introvert and and i remember times that we were dating that i mean literally we would there was this compatibility where we would stretch one another we'd you know we'd go to a party and she was you know she was, after a good hour she was ready to leave and mm -hmm. i was getting more and more energized mm -hmm. and she's like okay it's, it is time to go now. And then we'd go off, you know, we, we, we were student, students at Benedictine College at the time, and we'd go for some quiet and, and adoration. And what I would not have recognized in myself, there was a real need that she drew me mm. to the quiet, to the depth. You know, yeah. we would have a, a, just a conversation, just, just, just the two of us. And I drew her out of herself to the, to the party. Um, and that's kind of, you know, that's obviously a, a spousal context, but I think that's, I mean, so many of our listeners are family life mm. are, are, excuse me, are you know, married children. I know that's your story. It's, it's mine, mine as well. Can, can you talk a little bit about like, what does this look like in the context of family life? So a couple of things. One is, uh, is to be intentional about stability. Uh, so uh, the Benedictines, one of the mm. rules of their life is st st stabilitas, stability, right? Yeah. Um, and by that, I mean guarding your family's ability to be still with each other and guarding it with, with extreme prejudice. <laughs> uh, so yeah. I know this is heretical to say because we live in such a sports culture and an extracurricular culture, et cetera, but um, really guarding the ability to be with each other uh, and to force each other to have those, those kinds of interactions um, where we have to learn about the other's differences, right? Um, because yeah. knowing that, so I, I know that there, there have been controversies um, around him, uh, the founder of L'Arche, Jean Vanier, but he has this beautiful mm -hmm. book on communion uh, in, in which he talks about the absolute necessity to learn what it's like to be with somebody who's different than you. Mm -hmm. um, and, and if you, if you're not exposed to that early, it becomes very painful to learn how to do that and live in communion otherwise. So yeah. in terms of family, if you're living the social teaching, um, guarding the ability to be with each other uh, for periods of time. Now, one of the interesting things, I'm sure you've heard this before with the whole COVID thing was that families found themselves having to do that, whether they wanted to or not. Yep. Um, and sometimes that's gone. I don't, you know, everybody has a different experience. Um, but I have heard from those, some several families who've said it was a blessing because it forced us to be with each other in a way we hadn't been in a long time. Yeah. Um, and it's opened their eyes to the value of that kind of communal being with. I mean, you're not saying this explicitly, but there is a, there is a living of mercy that is painfully present to us as we encounter siblings and mm -hmm. people, you know, people who are in need, people who are different and, and we actually can't es escape them. I mean, I think about, you know, think about like the corporal works of mercy. It's like, yeah, I remember thinking about this in the context of family life once. I'm like, wait a minute. All we do is feed the hungry right. and clothe the naked, the <laughs> you know, and visit the children that we've ourselves put in time out, mm -hmm. you know, and like, you know, like, and if they really take us off, yeah, we're going to bury the dead. And so, I mean, it's just like all of the corporal works of mercy. That's not true, by the way, listeners. No, no. Uh, anyway, but like all of the corporal works of mercy 
really show up in family life. I mean, years ago, my wife, I mean, it's, it's become, it was, it was the product of a, of a, you know, young missionary family. We're like, Hey, we, we took, we took a, a newspaper article when mother Teresa died, cut it out at a nice picture of her and put it in a frame. Uh, and it didn't look great then. Mm. You can imagine how well it's aged. <laughs> right. uh, I don't know how long mother Teresa has been gone, but it's, it's been a little while. Ninety-seven, right? Yeah. But it's, it's framed and still up in our laundry room. Um, And that's a place, right, where much of the corporal works of mercy, I mean, just, (laughs) you know, somebody had an accident and we're we're clean. Like, so much of that takes shape there in that little, in that little space. It's it's right off the, off the kitchen for us. And it's a reminder, right? And and Mother Teresa would, she would fondly remind people. It's like, go love your family. Yeah, you know, you, yeah. You, people would ask her mother, "How do I do what you do?" And she's like, "Well, start at home." Yeah, yeah. So I, there was like, a friend. No, I don't want to. I don't like them. <laughs> I, have, I have a friend who who worked with the poor in in uh, New York for a number of years and was at a homeless shelter there when Mother Teresa visited way back in the whatever it was the eighties. Um, and he he has this great story where she came and there was somebody in in the little group there who who sent her, "Oh, Mother Teresa, I just love you. You everywhere you go, you bring peace." And mother looked at her and said, everywhere I go, I bring work. And what I, what I love about that is, um, you know, so, sometimes we can, as a father and my office is in my home, as you can see, and the laundry room is right across the hall. And um, uh, the, the work of family life uh, is plenty of work for those who are seeking to live the social teaching. The, the challenge for us is to do so intentionally, right? Um, is to try to do so in a way that we can in, interject and insert Jesus into the work that we're already doing. Yeah. Omar, I want to give you an opportunity here, just as we close, it's been a, a fantastic conversation. Any, mm-hmm. any final thoughts? Um, yeah, just in terms of like practical things and, and maybe some resources. One is um, because I think communion is so important and because our current cultural makeup is so allergic to communion, Mm-hmm. Um, I'd really recommend that uh, if you're couples seeking out organizations that help bring couples together, things like Christian Family Movement or Teams of Our Lady or the, the new one that started here in the Archdiocese. So, so being intentional about doing that with your family, with your spouse is really very important. If you're a professional mm-hmm. of some kind, finding other Catholics in that profession. So there's a Catholic Medical Association, the Catholic Business and Professional Club. There's There's lots of organizations. And if you're single and not married or whatever, there are organizations that um, that you can get together with with regularity that hold you accountable to living the life, whether it's, um, oh, I don't know, communion liberation or whatever it is, uh, being in communion and being intentional about doing that. Right. It's, a, it's sort of just a practical thing. Well, and if I could. Yeah, please. The purpose of those organizations isn't so much to create a bunker where it's like, oh, fine. No, now no. I, now right. I can, now I, oh, I can only have to hang out with Catholics, you know, because, you know, all the other people kind of freak me out. This is, I have to be out in the world. And now I have others who, who remind and teach and challenge and inspire yes. me. Yes, exactly. To live, to live that faith all seven days. Yes, that's exactly right. That, that's a very crucial point because we, we can do that. We can go seek out our own club that agrees with us. And that's not the purpose for, for what I'm talking about. That's not real communion. Right. So we've all had the experience of having a friend who would call us up uh, to, as, a, as a shoulder to cry on, as somebody to kind of complain to, right? Um, so I encourage listeners just to, um, in those moments, be willing to pray with that person. And the reason I say this, because I think, I think and Mother Teresa shows us this, that if, if living the social teaching is living in or with the pain of the Christ who is in pain, then to get in the habit of calling Christ into those moments of pain with our friends, with our loved ones, with those we trust, is a good habit to be in, in uh, to get into, and a good habit to try to foster in ourselves as we remind ourselves and whoever this friend is um, that in the end we need to find peace or happiness in Christ. Um, that's just a, a sort of a practical thing I've found very helpful over yeah, the years. And, and you're not saying, hey, okay, awesome. Just as you know, I'll be praying for you. You're talking like, I'm going to pray right here and now. Right. Right okay. here, right so, now. Yeah. Omar, I don't want to put you on the spot, but what does that sound like? For, for those who are 
maybe a little bit insecure. It's like, I don't know if I know how to do this. What, what might that yeah. sound like? So uh, two, two practical things. One would be, um, as, as the friend is sort of sharing with you whoever the problem is, asking questions like, if they haven't already shared this, they probably already have, but if they haven't, so what is that? How does that make you feel? Or what's, what is, so what do you, what would you like to see come out of the situation? Or what, what would you like your, your boss to, how would you like your boss to treat you or whatever it might be, right? Then whatever that answer is and say, well, can we, can we pray about that right now? Is that okay? Mm -hmm. um, or, um, you know, before, before you go on to the next thing, can we pray about that first thing? Yeah. Is that, uh, I want to pray for what it is you you would like to see and then and then just use their words in the in the prayer you don't have to come up with something fancy um just say jesus um uh we my friend wants the boss to treat her more respectfully we both ask you to, to help yeah. make that happen you, well and you're just i love these questions clarify what what does the person desire right what are they like, what, what is yeah. the real experience because yeah sometimes you get a long a long description of what's happening and when it comes down to it, it's like, okay, well, how does that make you feel? It's like, I feel disrespected. Uh, yeah. It's like, what do you want to happen? It's like, I just want a fair shake. It's like, okay, that's what we'll pray for. Yeah, that's fantastic. Exactly. The last thing I'd say is just in terms of like resources or things for people to read. And I, I really dislike plugging myself. So I'll do that at the, at the beginning and then give the good stuff at the end. But um uh, there's, I have this book, The Urging of Christ's Love, The Saints and the Social Teaching. So the, the reading the lives of the saints, especially in light of the church's social teaching, uh, I have found, and other people have reported back to me, really helpful. Um, yeah. so, so that book, also um, Dorothy Day's, one of her memoirs, just uh, called The Long Loneliness. Um, and uh, it's a beautiful story about her conversion, about her life. Uh, and I find it inspiring in so many different ways. Um, if you wanted to learn more about the social teaching in an easy way, um, like the actual documents and what it teaches, there are a few uh, uh, resources out there, but um, there's a little pamphlet that I did on Rerum Navarum and other things that you can go read. But also in terms of, of videos, like, so what does it mean? Acton Institute has a beautiful video series. The first one on human dignity is absolutely beautiful and, and really gets the heart of one of the central aspects of the church's social teaching. The human dignity of the human person. So all those resources, I think, are helpful, especially that first one. Uh, what I've heard people say is the urging of Christ's love, the saints of the social teaching. I've heard people just say it put me at ease because wow. it helped me realize yeah. this is possible. Good. So, oh, yeah. Omar, thank you. I, I mean, I think that's what we've been trying to do in this conversation. We're trying to help make this this the, this ideal the the beauty that is presented to us just a little bit more ordinary and a little bit more doable and and i think you've helped us take take a big step towards doing that so thank you my pleasure my pleasure thanks for having me all right everybody if you if you've benefited from this conversation uh go ahead and share it out with those who you think would uh find it find it helpful you can subscribe so you don't miss an episode at EquipCast, all one word. You can find the show notes uh, and other goodies, blogs at equip.archomaha.org. Omar, again, thank you for being with us. And uh, thanks for listening, everybody. Mm -hmm.